I'm Bill Bubert, retired Army officer and a regular warfare practitioner and scholar. Welcome to Chasing Ghosts and a Regular Warfare Podcast, the show that examines the mythos, lost history, bad thinking, martial malpractice, and government incompetence that informs so much of a regular warfare. I want to peek behind the curtain at the vast machinery and briar patch politics of insurgency and counterinsurgency and everything in between. Now, let's go ghost hunting together. Hello and welcome back to Chasing Ghosts and a Regular Warfare podcast with me, Bill Bupert. This is going to be another episode of Excursions where we sort of step out of the portfolio that I ordinarily address, which is irregular warfare as an umbrellic rubric term for all those things that aren't the big fight or the conventional fight. But today we're going to talk about naval history, naval power, and that kind of thing. This is episode 34, CG Excursions, Deep Six, the Carrier Force, Naval Power in the 21st Century. Some administrative notes. I wanted to thank all my listeners who have written to me in correspondence on my email. Also wanted to announce that I now have a Substack page, which has comments sections for each of the previous 33 episodes, which will, which will be 34 once you're listening to this, because this will have then been published. If you wish to get in touch with me directly, that will be cgpodcast at pm.me. That is cgpodcast at pm.me. So we'll get started. So while I always have been and will remain extraordinarily interested in a regular warfare, of course, as people may have noted, I'm interested in all kinds of uh, aspects of warfare and military history. And the middle son and I, Connor, just so happened to be naval history geeks also. He and I have read all of the late James D. Hornfisher's books, with the exception of the last one, which was Who Can Hold the Sea? The U.S. Navy in the Cold War, 1945 to 1960, which I commend to your attention. I commend all of Hornfisher's books. We tragically lost him at an early age to cancer. I think it was two years ago. Probably one of the preeminent and really interesting and extraordinary writers in naval history. Highly recommend if you get a chance to take a look at that. Well, it just so happens that that book really inspired me to write about what I've long considered to be an anachronism in the American and Western arsenal, which is the use of aircraft carriers and their accompanying flotillas, and the enormous cost that these ships happen to cost the respective countries that have them. It just so happens that America has boasted the largest carrier forces from World War II on. The first carrier was, of course, launched in 1911, I think it was. A storied history, well over 100 years old, as a naval implement of war. And then, of course, we find that because of the Japanese preparation and execution of extraordinary naval aviation skills and what was known as Kido Butai, those four ships that were sunk by the Americans at Midway in 1942 brought naval aviation, naval aviation to the fore and made it so that all the previous investments in capital ships to include the largest class, which would be battleships, December 8th, 1941, all of that blood and treasure and national pouring of resources 
into the construction of large capital ships to include the battleships was not because, of course, we see on the 10th of December, 1941, the Prince of Wales and the Repulse on their way to assist the greater East Asian British colonies were sunk in the South China Sea by Japanese naval aviation, marking the beginning of the end of the battleship and capital ships for the most part. There were not a lot of battleship and capital ship engagements that took place during the entirety of the war. Most of the engagements happened to be naval aviation. National navies planet-wide today are all in the hazard and tend not to be the kind of blue water fleets that we're accustomed to seeing. For instance, as of January 2024, there are 47 active aircraft carriers in the world operated by 14 navies. The U.S. Navy has 11 large nuclear power fleet carriers carrying around 80 fighters each, largest carriers in the world. Total combined deck space is over twice that of all the other nations combined. Uh, the U.S. Navy also has the Gator Navy, the amphibious assault ships that are used primarily for helicopters, although these also each carry up to 20 VTOL or STOL fighter jets and such. And the Harriers that the Marine Corps would famously have used in the past are now being replaced by the F-35 Bravos and Charlies. The description of supercarriers is not an official designation with any national navy, but a term used predominantly by the media and typically when reporting on larger or more advanced carrier types. Now, China, Russia, and the UK all have carriers in service or under construction with displacements ranging from 65,000 to 85,000 tons and lengths from 280 to 320 meters. And they've been described as supercarriers. The largest supercarriers in service as of today are with the U.S. Navy with displacements exceeding 100,000 tons and lengths of over 337 meters and capabilities that match or exceed that of any other class. So we're going to take a moment here to reflect on the overall status of navies planet-wide and blue water navies, of which there are very few planet-wide. What we experience, for instance, in the West and the United States is a lot of very either moribund or badly engineered ship designs that are coming out anything above the class of corvette and frigate that have had tremendous problems. The littoral combat ship as a class has had tremendous teething problems, engineering problems, budget problems, and such. When first envisioned at the beginning of the 21st century, they were going to be a frigate minus or a frigate plus, and through a modular capacity, serve a number of missions, everything from ASW to countermine operations to mine lane operations and whatever the case may be. If I recall, when I saw one assessment by Commander Salamander, it had been either 17 or 18 years on since the program first started, and not one module has been successful in deployment. It's so bad that the Navy will decommission LCS USS Little Rock and USS Detroit in 2023. These two Freedom Class LCSs that are based in Mayport each have less than 10 years in service, which is 20 years short of the 30 years of service life that was expected of both of these. Uh, they were commissioned in 2017 and 2016, respectively, getting rid of them because of all the engineering problems 
and all the whole problems and structural problems and just problems from a concept of operations perspective, which I don't think was mature in the concepts and requirements stages, to actually assess what they wanted to achieve with the construction of these holes. Now, they'll be decommissioned in addition to the USS Lake Champlain, which is a guided missile cruiser, and the USS Milwaukee will also be decommissioned, which is also an LCS, and two more guided missile cruisers. The LCS, which some refer to as a little crappy ship, has pretty much been a ship that a lot of navalists and casual and professional observers have scratched their heads and said, not only was the CONOPS immature, short-sighted, and probably not very well done, but they wonder that here we have all these keels and holes being commissioned with the LCS, what will you do with them? Because, for instance, they don't have a really good track record when it comes to not having engineering casualties and not having problems at sea that force them to prematurely leave deployments that they've been on. Then one can move on to the USS Zumwalt, which uh, was envisioned at the turn of the 21st century with its tumble home design, which is supposed to be a wave piercing, end of quote, design, but it's just been a mess. It's an ugly, unseaworthy looking vessel. I am not a naval architect by profession, but when one looks at the Zumwalt, and by the way, they have built three Zumwalt destroyers, a total cost of $24.5 billion, an average of $8 billion per ship. They were projected to build 30 of these. They stopped at three, thank goodness, and they have gone on to acquire Arleigh Burks instead in place of what they thought was going to be the USS Zumwalt actually replacing the Arleigh Burke platforms themselves. I like to quote Mike Friedenberg, who did a really able analysis of the Zumwalt when it broke down in the Panama Canal in November 2016, and he concluded that the ship's problems are emblematic of defense procurement system that is rapidly losing its ability to meet our national security needs. He went on to detail problems relating to the skyrocketing costs, the lack of accountability, unrealistic goals, a flawed concept of operations, the perils of designing a warship around stealth, and the failure of the advanced gun system. That advanced gun system, by the way, the LURLAP, apparently was going to cost $1 million around. Even the U.S. Navy said maybe that's a lot of money and canceled it, so this ship was deployed with vertical launch systems only and no gun system whatsoever. Friedenberg concludes, quote, The Zumwalt is an unmitigated disaster. Clearly, it is not a good fit as a frontline warship. With its guns neutered, its role as a primary anti-submarine warfare asset in question, its anti-air warfare capabilities inferior to those of our current workhorse, the Arleigh Burke-class destroyers, and its stealth not nearly as advantageous as advertised, the Zumwalt seems to be a ship without a mission, end of quote. In addition to these things, you will note that when you look at it, because of the stealth characteristics that were required, it doesn't have a phalanx close-in weapons protection system. Those are those R2-D2-like systems that you see that have an RPM of rounds per minute of 3,000 to 6,000 rounds per minute, so that it can take down with a wall of steel incoming munitions or UASs or UAVs or such. 
Which brings us, of course, to the USS Ford CVN-78, the successor, allegedly, to the pretty successful Nimitz nuclear-class carriers, yet another nuclear-class carrier. Again, we have concept of operations problems. We have what's called concurrent technology, where the carrier was built with a system that wasn't quite up to speed as far as its technical capability of being entirely usable, if not safe, for launching and retrieving aircraft and all the other things that a very large supercarrier has to do for a living. Well, what you had with the USS Gerald R. Ford is that it has continuing problems. When you look at some of the Director of Operational and Test Evaluation reports that have been issued by the Navy, they find that a lot of the Ford's challenges are very severe. Now, DOT&E's core concern centered on the maturity of the new technologies, those concurrent technologies that were installed aboard the Ford. Poor or unknown reliability of systems critical for flight operations, including newly designed catapults, arresting gear, weapons, elevators, and radars, could affect the ability of CVN-78 to generate, generate sorties. Sorties are combat or non-combat generation of a flight that takes off and returns. Now, Ford is unlikely to achieve the sortie generation rate requirement because it is electromagnetically based instead of steam catapults. Steam catapults for U.S. Navy carriers before the Ford were the way that carriers had done their business in the West more exclusively in the United States for the launching and retrieval of aircraft. Those steam systems were vital for that to happen. One thing you have to keep in mind, and I am not a naval aviator, but I have colleagues and friends who were naval aviators, is that when that jet takes off, whatever it may be, it could be the, the old uh, 18s, could be the 35s. We could go back all the way in time to what was happening in World War II with the prop-driven aircraft and the Korean War that were driven off the decks. You are at full throttle to leave that deck. It looks long, but it's maybe not long enough for most aircraft. Full throttle, in addition to the marginal energy impulse given by the steam catapult itself. Now, what happens is, if that fails for some reason and you have insufficient velocity, what you're going to do is find yourself, as the naval aviator, going into the drink, either in front of or next to the aircraft carrier. And if you're lucky, that aircraft carrier traveling at about 30 knots into the wind to give you the additional velocity and speed measurements that you need to make it off the deck doesn't run over your aircraft once you hit the water. You will note that 10 to 15 degree deck offset that you will see when you look down at an aircraft carrier today in the modern world is meant so that if that failure does occur, when that naval aviator finds himself in the drink, he is at angle off bow or starboard from the carrier so he doesn't get run over by the carrier in the process. Now let's keep in mind that the U.S. Navy accepted the Ford six years ago when it lacked the capacity to do what one would characterize as the primary job of an aircraft carrier, which is to reliably retrieve and launch aircraft. Now, what would be some of the other problems that they've discovered at DOT&E? What they've discovered is that some of those self-defense systems 
the uh, electronic warfare systems and multifunction radars and the cooperative engagement capabilities, that's a tracking and data fusion and distribution system, exhibited, quote, deficiencies and limitations that would reduce the overall self-defense capability of the ship, end of quote. Let's also keep in mind that if we hearken back to the 100-plus carriers that the U.S. Navy ran during the conduct of the Pacific War, mostly in World War II, some of those carriers, especially the Essex class, I think, had five-inch guns on them for self-defense. You will be hard-pressed to find five-inch guns in service in the U.S. Navy today anywhere. So I mentioned how important it is to have the steam catapult system, the steam cat systems, to launch the aircraft. These same systems are used to arrest the landing of the aircraft once they return to the aircraft carrier. Now, the reliability of the CVN-78 catapults, arresting gear, and jet blast deflectors continues to have an adverse effect on sortie generation and flight operations. Now, these launch and recovery systems at the core of the fort are the, these are the core of the fort's capabilities. This is what, what was touted. The electromagnetic aircraft launch system, EMALS, was designed to be an ultra-reliable replacement for the Steamcat, which was the Navy's proven system. However... This email's reliability numbers are running well below expectations. Now, keep in mind before I read the following quote from you from March, June 2022. When it came to steam catapult mean times between failures, which is MTBF in engineering acronym speak, of 30, approximately 35,000, which means that one out of every 35,000 launches on the proven steam catapult system would be a launch that would fail and possibly sending that naval aviator and his aircraft into the drink to be rescued. Now, what would you suppose those catapult mean times between failures are here? They were 600 cycles between failures, a fraction of the 4,000-plus cycle design goal. You'll notice that that 4 thousand cycle design goal is significantly less than the steam catapult mean time between failure of approximately one in 35,000. And then again, we have the carrier's advanced arresting gear, AAG, has similar challenges. The AAG is supposed to cycle 16,500 times between failures and recent testing shows it at 450. You'll notice uh, 450, 600, these cycles tend to be similar to each other, and that is for one very seriously stupid engineering reason, and that is that the launching with the emuls and the retrieval with the emuls are both integrated into the same system. And now, because of the heat, the tremendous heat generated on the deck by the F-35 being a VTOL aircraft, they're having problems with the jet blast deflectors, the deck panels that are raised to protect other aircraft during a launch. The deflectors are, of course, electromagnetically actuated, and the actuators have repeatedly broken down in service. During one recent carrier qualification trial, all four broke down, forcing the ship to return to reports. And get this, it appears, and this is preliminary, corroded fasteners caused those failures. Now, below decks... The 11 advanced weapon elevators that they have have also continued to be a perennial source of trouble for the aircraft carrier. They've reported 109 elevator failures 
out of about 20,000 elevator dispatches. Now, one thing that's very concerning about all of this is that when it comes to all these systems working together, that's a problem in and of itself. When it comes to retrofitting a carrier, that's a huge problem in and of itself. Because from a naval architecture point of view and the operations and manufacture of aircraft carriers, when it comes to the steam catapult system, that system is built into the carrier from the keel up. So if there are weapons elevator malfunctions, there are AAG malfunctions, there are EMALS malfunctions, it's not simply a matter of unbolting a deck plate or two or three or a dozen and then reinstalling something. These are built into the heart of the ship, which is going to cause significant problems. And there's also a number of other problems, among which, for instance, is because of various factors that all of us can guess at, there are no urinals on the USS Ford. They're all toilets. For those of you who have been sailors in the past, I happen to be a U.S. Navy alumni as an enlisted guy and a petty officer. That's a uh, pretty silly notion, especially with the waterless urinals that are so common in the American Southwest and spreading throughout the country. Uh, very useful because what happens in sea states that are less that are a little worse than glassy when you're on a moving ship that's moving in three dimensions when you have toilets with water in them. All of us can guess at what happens with that. So I've teased at the teething problems that have happened in the last generation or two of the U.S. Navy trying to build ships, period, with three examples of the LCS and the Zumwalt and now the Ford, which is going to be the successor to the very successful Nimitz-class supercarriers. What we see here is a pattern. Now, mind you, would I expect the first ship in a brand new class to have teething problems? There is no doubt in my mind that that would occur. But the sheer number of concurrent technology advances that were incorporated into the, the, the design of the USS Ford and what I find to be an insufficient concept of operations in guiding the, the design and development of the ship, the architecture, and what it would do once it went to sea, you will find that they are not doing this in the professional and war-making fashion that one would expect of the world's premier Blue Water Navy. The U.S. Navy relied for the longest time on the F-18 Echo and Foxtrot, and it's been in the U.S. Navy for decades. The combat range of an F-18 is approximately 400 to 600 miles with a 4,000-pound bomb load. Uh, for ferry flights, if given three drop tanks, which is 3,264 gallons of extra fuel, range will probably be around 1,800 miles. Without the drop tanks, I think the maximum ferry range would be roughly 1,400 miles at most without a bomb load. So with the max speed of Mach 1.6 for the F-18 Super Eagle, its range is 1,458 miles with armament of two AIM-9s. Its combat range, which is important to take into consideration, is 511 miles and that combat radius for an interdiction mission, that's with two 480-gallon drop tanks. It's uh, 563 miles with three 480-gallon drop tanks. And then for fighter escort, which is going to be air-to-air -air mission on internal fuel only, it's about 532 miles. 
I know that those mile ranges and combat radii appear different, but that all depends on two things. Number one, what is the mission profile and what is the munitions burden on the aircraft itself? A non-stealth aircraft that is probably entering the end of its service life unless the Pentagon in the West wraps its head around the fact that the F-35 may not be all they make it out to be. Now, I may devote an entire podcast episode in the future in a variation on excursions concerning the F-35, Bravo, and Charlie, which I don't want to spend a tremendous amount of time on here. The F-35 Alpha, of course, would be the one that would come off of landborne tarmacs. The Bravo and Charlie would be the variants that the U.S. Navy and the Marines have adopted for using. And I don't have to trouble you with all the tremendous problems that that aircraft has had, not only in the design phase and how much it has cost, how much it continues to cost, the problems that it's having, and also the rather limited combat radius that it has. That combat radius is rated between 600 and 660 miles. Uh, By the way, the Chinese DF-21 Delta, which is their anti-ship missile that they launch from land. I don't know whether the Chinese have adapted a missile capability to launch from ships, but I don't see how they'd have to if they are fighting in their own home waters, is 1,200 miles. So you can see where it becomes problematic for where that aircraft carrier or carriers are going to station themselves to launch their strike aircraft or whatever kind of aircraft they're going to launch into the air to conduct operations. So, of course, most people are concerned not so much with an Atlantic fight but with a Pacific fight and a Pacific Rim fight in this case. The Chinese have adopted a two-prong approach to protect both their Pacific coastline and their ambitions to take back Taiwan with a very sophisticated anti-access aerial denial A2AD in-depth zone on the Pacific coastline of China proper. By the way, if one were to take all of the ground-to-air interception modalities that America and the West boast, whether it be Patriots, Thad, HIMARS, whatever the case may be, and all of a sudden tomorrow morning we got a warning that in 48 hours the American West Coast would be in the hazard, if you took all of those and miraculously repositioned them within that 48-hour period of time to the West Coast, from all over the planet and took all of those sensors and effectors and put them there, you would be lucky to be able to defend half of San Diego County, much less the entire extent of the west coast of the United States, not including Alaska, of course. As I mentioned in my previous episode when we discussed excursions and salvo competition, that has a lot to do with what the Chinese are thinking in this case. Yes, indeed, they are trying to build an aircraft carrier for reasons that I cannot divine. I think it may be more so for political prestige than for military utility. But who am I to to try to divine why they are doing what they're doing? So those Chinese A2AD zones are set up to deny U.S. access to Taiwan and the South China Sea. Uh, Russia uses A2AD zones in Kaliningrad, in the Crimea, in the Kola Peninsula, and the Kuril Islands to block key maritime avenues of approach. So it isn't unusual to see this. Now, their destruction would break up integration of those enemy defenses. That's also called disintegration. They put a dash between dis and integration in the DOD documentation. 
Four decades, the offense-defense balance was firmly on the offense. Emerging technologies in the fields of network AI and space are shifting the balance back to defense, which has been the primary means by which the Chinese and the Russians have contest, contested their peer competitor in the United States. China has also decided that not only would they have a layered defense and in-depth defense and an offensive defense having a DF-21 Delta, as I mentioned earlier, that has a range of 1,200 nautical miles. And all of those ranges, by the way, keep on going out in radii. When you look at these Chinese regional missile defense modalities, you see that the layering depth that they have, and I... CSIS has a missile defense project in which they laid out in an interesting infographic what these regional missile threats and defensive mechanisms are. They have layered defenses with cruise missiles that have a up to 1,500-kilometer range. And then for their SRBMs, which are the short-range ballistic missiles, they have ranges of 300 to 1,000 kilometers For the MRBMs, which are medium-range ballistic missiles, 1,000 to 3,000 kilometers. And then, of course, the IRBM, which is the intermediate-range ballistic missile. And I think they only have one of those, which is the DF-26. The range is 3,000 to 5,500 kilometers. Now, they have different variants and different models that are coming out of these on a basis that seems to be every year or two because it appears that the Chinese acquisition system Uh, probably related to a very sophisticated foreign intelligence service acquisition of economic manufacturing espionage and also homegrown intelligence and architecting that they do to develop these. They are coming out with iterations of their missile systems that are way ahead as far as the cadence and time of what the West can compete with. For instance, quoting from the CSIS, weapons like the hypersonic DF-ZF boost glide missile, which is carried aloft by China's medium-range DF-17 ballistic missile, have a claimed range of nearly 1,200 miles and an alleged top speed ranging between Mach 5 and Mach 10, with the ability to carry large conventional or even nuclear payloads combined with a sheer kinetic force of a hypersonic impact. The DF-ZF may potentially have the power to render even America's Nimitz and Ford-class supercarriers inoperable with a single strike. A quick note here. You don't have to sink a carrier. If you stop the carrier by destroying a screw where it has no propulsion that goes near the 30 knots needed for launching aircraft, or you put a five-degree list or more on the carrier and it hasn't sunk, it is unable to do its only sole job, which is launching and reliably retrieving aircraft. Like I mentioned earlier, that DFZF along with the, uh, the DF-26 that I mentioned earlier, these missiles have twice the, com- twice the combat radius of America's longest flying carrier fighter, the F-35 Charlie, with about 37% more wing area than the rest of the Joint Strike Fighter family, The F-35 Charlie has a combat radius of nearly 690 miles, 510 miles short of China's hypersonic reach. Put simply, according to CIS, this means sailing one of America's carriers close enough to China to launch manned F-35 sorties also means placing that carrier squarely within reach of China's carrier-killing missiles, end of quote. And I would also note that when one looks at a map of the Pacific— and you see the regional hegemon of China, 
in the West, and then you see the um, the American global hegemon of America in the East. These DF missiles, I think that the primary job of the Chinese armed forces now is going to be that they're going to try to keep extending the range over time until that range stops American carriers from safely leaving their ports on the United States West Coast, much less in Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. By the way, I'd mentioned the jet blast deflectors that are on the USS Ford. A Pentagon Testing Evaluation Office noted in a January report that the Ford's jet blast deflector, the large panel that raises just before a jet is catapulted off the flight deck to protect the ship and sailors from intense heat, was among the systems with ongoing reliability problems. The report notes that the electromechanical actuators that raise and lower the panels on Ford-class carriers were at the heart of the jet blast deflector reliability problems. The Navy has made several mods to these deflectors, but still, during August underway of last year, the ship saw actuator-related failures in all four jet blast deflectors on the flight deck. So again, the fact remains that the USS Ford six and a half years after delivery still appears unable to match the sortie generation performance a World War II era carrier, the USS Midway, for instance, CV-41 exhibited during Desert Storm. So we also have to entertain something that's called the one-thirds rule when it comes to deployability and military assets. What you have, whether land-borne, seaborne, or airborne assets, for the most part, is that you'll have one-third ready to go, one-third in train-ups, roll-ups, or after-action reviews, and then one-third on which maintenance is being done. Now, when it comes to America's naval nuclear care, midlife refueling and overhaul can take four years, even though when it comes to submarines, which are not a subject of this particular episode, but nonetheless, we have had some of our nuclear submarines in refueling and overhaul operations, what is called refueling and complex overhaul, ARCO, R-C-O-H, in naval parlance. It could take three, four years, but we've had one that's been dockside for nearly seven. Although I will tell you that that four years is probably maybe optimal because the USS George Washington CVN-73, which is the nation's sixth Nimitz-class nuclear-powered aircraft carrier, they just completed their ARCO on May 25th, 2023, but they entered the ARCO August 4th, 2017. So obviously that's more than three years. It's extended 69-month ARCO process. They address challenges such as the COVID pandemic, supplier interruptions, competing requirements for resources. Those are the excuses given by the Navy, but one can probably look back and find that it will be longer than four years as a regular part of naval operations from this point forward. So just the daily cost of running a Nimitz, not a Ford, running a Nimitz is approximately $1.5 million. But as everybody who is aware or has watched Hollywood or maybe you've been in the Navy and you know this, it's going to cost uh, probably 6.5 to $7 million. I would say that uh, more, more, more north of $10 million per day because of the armada and flotilla that accompanies a carrier in a carrier battle group, which would be the associated destroyers, possibly a frigate, possibly submarines, 
possibly maintenance ships that would accompany it. It's very expensive to run these on a daily basis, much less the sunk costs and the maintenance costs and the unintended maintenance costs. So I thought it would be interesting to examine the cost of these warships and how much do they cost on a regular basis apart from the carriers themselves. The Zumwalt, according to the CBO, the Congressional Budget Office, has the lowest annual operating cost of any warship in the U.S. Navy at $100 million annually. And that's on a $8 billion ship. Littoral combat ships, those little crappy ships, they're about $100 million. The Ticonderogas, with their 122 VLS cells and powerful Aegis combat systems, it uh, probably $110 million per ship annually. Arleigh Burke's about $140 million annually, $140 million for attack submarines, ballistic and cruise missile submarines, probably $170 million. This is all according to the CBO. Amphibious assault ships, the Gator Navy, because of the high density of personnel and the U.S. Marine Corps also being a part of that, because on average each amphibious assault ship has 1,450 personnel associated with it, and this number doesn't include the Marine Expeditionary Unit that's aboard the ship, and that's 2,200 packs and 30 aircraft. That's about $270 million per ship for an aircraft carrier. And the U.S. Navy has only nine air wings. You're talking the average annual operating cost of one supercarrier is $1.2 billion. A carrier air wing, which is, has approximately a little north of 4,900 packs, annual operating budget of $910 million per unit. So a carrier with its air wing, you're looking at $2 billion a year to maintain them. So I'd mentioned earlier about the carrier strike group and the associated ships, both surface and submarine, and how much that costs. So in total, the annual cost of operating 11 carriers and nine air wings is around $21 billion, which is approximately 25% of the reported Russian annual defense budget. I'm not certain what it is for the Chinese, but it is considerable nonetheless. So I've given you all these details about carriers, problems, Navy blue water operations, and such. The last aircraft carrier to be sunk in wartime was the Imperial Japanese ship Amagi, July 1945. A total of 22 were sunk during that time in the Imperial Japanese fleet. So as far as not defending the homeland but participating in overseas aggression, there is no doubt that the carrier serves its purpose if that is something that America considers rationally and truly to be in its best interest. I happen to disagree with that. So I want to examine what causes us to build these in the first place, and then we'll examine the combat and military efficacy of these ships. So... Let's talk about the USS Ford supply chain, which consists of 2,450 companies in 48 states and 364 congressional districts, employing 13,100 people along the way. And the Newport News shipyard alone employs 25,000 more. One can see a pattern here in why the U.S. Navy and the U.S. government would be so concerned about making sure that not only do these continue to be built, but we continue to identify in the public's mind that these are so vital to national security and national defense. In May 2011, 
U.S. Naval Institute Proceedings published a very interesting article by Captain Henry J. Hendricks, U.S. Navy, and Lieutenant Colonel J. Noel Williams, USMC, called The Twilight of the Superfluous Carrier. And they made a really good point on why we need to build smaller ships if we must have aircraft carriers instead of the larger ones. Now, Hendricks went on to write some other things concerning carriers and why they lack in so much efficacy. For instance, to quote, the march of technology is bringing the supercarrier era to an end, just as the new long-range strike capabilities of carrier aviation brought on the demise of the battleship era in the 1940s. Look, I think the big CVs were obsolete then, and they're further obsolete now in the more expansive age of over-the-horizon targeting advances and undersea threats. Now, this is everything from the DF-21 Deltas and all of their successors to the submarine threat. That submarine threat, both nuclear and diesel electric from near-peer and peer competitors. And we're, we're still playing this game from before December 7th, 1941, and staying in an existing comfort zone, waiting for someone to stick their finger in our eye before we react. The bottom line is that against a real power with real sea control assets, and in this case, sea control as a regional hegemon in the case of China, 12 U.S. carriers would disappear over time rather quickly. This is a tremendously risky enterprise in taking 11 to 12 carriers and putting all your martial eggs in that basket and depending on it. The U.S. Navy has made this their surface center of gravity for so long they don't know how to do anything else. Now, mind you, advances in precision-guided munitions and missiles and, of course, evidenced by the 100 minus or 100 plus, depending on how many vertical launch systems are on surface ships that the U.S. Navy currently deploys and fields. There is a tremendous advantage to using these from a cost and salvo competition basis that doesn't put all of one's eggs in an extraordinarily expensive basket. So what am I proposing? Here's what I'm proposing. The bottom line is the age of the carrier is matching the age of the crossbow and the chariot. Very extraordinary, ideal weapon systems for their times which were quickly overtaken by revolutions in military affairs and paradigm shifts in the way war was fought, which instantiated that both the chariot and the crossbow for a period of time were good, but now they're not. They were anachronisms at the time contemporaneously with other weapon systems that were emerging. Now, what we have with the carriers is we have this almost allegorical and apocryphal mindset in the United States and the West, that since we won World War II in the Pacific with these, they must be perfectly appropriate today. Yet again, and this is the third time in this episode that I'm really hammering this home, December 8th, 9th, and 10th, 1941, in that three-day short period of time, showed that the previous investment over the previous 80 years in battleships and capital ships and naval gunnery, naval gunnery, by the way, which had only existed in its present form with Tourette's that could elevate and turn about for the past 80 years prior to 1941, became anachronisms for the most part. What won the conflict tactically at times was naval gunnery. 
What won the Pacific War strategically was naval aviation. That is no longer the case because in World War II, precision-guided munitions, missile technology were in infantile stages and used in very low-density campaigns and did not assume the proportions that we have today of those very technologies, which, again, in a salvo competition, as I mentioned in the last episode, are such that you can deploy these very expensive modalities like carriers and carrier strike groups But because of the cost of missiles, it makes it pennies on the dollar, if not the thousand dollars, to destroy these if you get lucky. Remember what the IRA told Maggie Thatcher. Hey, you've got to be lucky all the time. We've only got to be lucky once. The same thing applies when it comes to China, Russia, and other peer competitors and other near-peer competitors. And by the way, sub-near-peer competitors, like what has been happening with the Houthis in Yemen, causing all kinds of havoc on the narrow sea lanes with commercial and military sea traffic in their locality. How does a carrier, a supercarrier in this case, with an air wing of approximately 90, even though I think they're playing with those numbers in strike aircraft, would be a little smaller than that. And of course, using the one-third, one-third, one-third rotation that I just talked about, the actual carrier airstrike that goes beyond the envelope of the carrier air patrol and the barrier carrier air patrol that are used to protect the carrier and the carrier strike group with aviation assets itself makes it so that a minuscule number of the aircraft on the deck that are capable of being launched in sortie generation is going to be rather small and ineffective against the tremendous salvos that will be lobbed of both exquisite piloted aircraft, unmanned aircraft, and missile munitions around the world, but especially in the Pacific. Carriers had their day, but their day no longer exists. I think that if I were chief of naval operations for a day, I would phase out over the next two to four years all aircraft carriers and then maybe, just maybe, examine the utility of combat UAVs, unpiloted combat aircraft, which have a lot of advantages to include cost, speed, performance, and the the lack of aviation survival capabilities and the lack of the need to, if said aircraft crashes or happens to be lost, one doesn't have to try to retrieve the lost airman or naval aviator who may have been in the aircraft in the first place. UCAVs, unmanned combat aerial vehicles, would demand probably quarter size, fifth size of current aircraft that facilitate manning by human beings in the cockpit. They would probably be smaller in scale, which means that if one wanted to not abandon carrier operations altogether, you have lighter carriers, Jeep carriers, maybe you can use LPHs and, and ships that are presently in the Gator Navy and outfit them for UCAVs and whatever may happen. For those who think that the projection of air power instead of missile power is so important. In addition, I think the, the extraordinarily unique and single strongest strategic suite in the American arsenal is submarine capabilities, both attack submarines and cruise missile submarines and ballistic submarines. I think that if the 21st century navalist 
had their head in the game and were thinking rationally and had the martial imagination to grok this, they would know that trebling that present force after reducing the carrier forces would still allow America to act as a global hegemon. I cannot morally wrap my head around why America has to be a global hegemon, but if it were to remain a regional hegemon, it could do it much more effectively with subsurface assets instead of surface assets. Bottom line for me, retire the carrier forces immediately and find a new way to do that business. So, thanks for listening. I would love to hear from you if you think that I'm either right on or you happen to think that I've lost my mind when it comes to getting rid of carriers in the U.S. Naval Inventory. Uh, I accept constructive criticism. Would love to enjoin you in a conversation about this. So you can write me at cgpodcast at pm.me. That is cgpodcast at pm.me. Or look up the Chasing Ghosts substack. So I thank you for listening. I thank all my listeners who continue to listen. I would urge all of you, if you get the opportunity, to spread the word if you enjoy this. This is Bill out.